Good morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, prepare our hearts that your written word would be our rule and guide in your greater glory, our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture reading today is from James, chapter 5, 13 through 20. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chloe. Algae and lily pads, and it's just, what does it look like for your faith to be vibrant, always moving, always changing, less like that stagnant pond and more like a river or an ocean where the water is, is alive? What does that look like? Now, uh, when you read back and consider this last little chunk that we're going to consider today, it may strike you that that's a that's kind of a weird way in our modern American ears to end a letter. In fact, James ends his letter differently than, than even Paul ends a lot of his letters. If you didn't know this was the end, you would think there's more coming after it. But James's very last statement, his very last statement is this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Sincerely, James. <laughs> who, who ends a letter like that? This seems like an uncharacteristic way to end a letter, and yet, what I hope we'll see is that James is tying together a lot of themes that he has been covering throughout the whole letter, and as he seeks to answer the question, what does it look like to have a a hopefully growing, always maturing, always developing faith, he keys in on one final central theme, which is prayer. This is actually the second week we're covering this text. Last week, we looked at it and saw how James is challenging us to see prayer not only as a discrete activity, you know, where you get up early in the morning and you sit down on the couch and you bow your head and close your eyes and fold your hands and you kind of mumble your, your words. Maybe you pray out loud or maybe just in your mind to Jesus and you try not to get distracted or to let your mind wander and, and then you check that box off from the day and move on. That's how many of us see prayer. James invites us to consider what if prayer is, is not not only an activity, though it, it's important to set aside time to pray, but what if prayer is a whole posture, almost a whole lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle of submission to God? In other words, to live a whole life praying constantly, as it were, the same prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. Or like we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer this morning, and we pray this every week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
Prayer is not only something that is uh, necessary for us to set aside time to do, but it's a whole posture. That's what we saw last week. This week, we're going to let James add one more facet, facet to the gem of prayer. We're going to look through and see that prayer is not only also an individual activity, but is meant to be something we practice together. Prayer is not just something we do individually. It's not just a private practice, but it is something we do together in community with one another. Because, and he's come back to this over and over, our faith is not, uh, I might put it this way and I'll define my terms, our faith is not meant to be a private faith. It is a personal faith. There is a dimension to the, our faith in Christ where, where you can have a direct individual relationship with God and he wants that with you and for you. But it's not private in the sense of, uh, you know, somebody who, who really values privacy might never invite somebody else into their home. Somebody who's overly private might never allow somebody else into their life. Sometimes we tend to think, we confuse the personal with the private. We say, because I have a personal relationship with Jesus, well, then it's just me and Jesus and nobody else is allowed in. But Scripture constantly asks us to, to challenge that and to invite other people into our, our expression of faith. So this morning, James is finishing by challenging us. What does it look like to grow as a Christian? It's to grow as a community of prayer together. To grow as a community of prayer together. Now, as James finishes by teaching on prayer, you'll notice he singles out two specific circumstances, and we're going to look at each of those a little bit, and then we're going to see how that's a lens for prayer as community. But he, he points to two specific instances when it's important for Christians to pray together. One is when somebody is sick. And two is, in, is when somebody is confessing sin. So there is prayer for sickness and there is prayer for sin. Both of those are prayer with one another. Now that's going to be even more challenging when we get to the part about praying for sin because I want, I want my prayers for sin just to be inside of me. I don't want to let anybody else into that part of my life. But I hope we'll see that it's actually more healthy and more liberating when we pray for our sin together. But James starts with sickness. Here's how he starts. He says, is any of you sick? This is verse 14, if you're following along. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And here's the tricky part, and we'll cover this. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. That's a big promise. We'll get there, I promise. But most commentators and, and people who, are just, who know much more about the Bible than I do, for sure, will tell you that James probably has in mind here somebody who's, this isn't just somebody with a common cold. This isn't just somebody who's kind of a little bit sniffly, like, you know, winter's coming and we're all going to be a little bit sniffly. This is somebody who's maybe even on their deathbed really, really ill. And in that moment, what does he say? He says, call the elders of the church to pray for you. Now, we don't have formally recognized elders here at Middle Street. There may come a day when we do, and James actually gives helpful guidance in terms of how do you recognize who should be the elders of a church. Well, it's the people that when you're deathly ill, you're calling that person to come pray for you. That's a pretty good rubric through which to view or ask, 
Who should be the elders of this church? It's the people who, when, when it hits the fan, I want you coming and praying for me. But what's important to recognize is that elders are not only pastors. James doesn't say, if you're really sick, call the pastor and the pastor will come pray for you. He says, call the elders. And elders in the New Testament church and in modern churches today that have elders are ordinary men and women, no different from anybody else. There's actually no New Testament distinction between a pastor and a layperson other than um, Churches tend to pay pastors to take care of a lot of administrative tasks and to preach. But pastors are no more spiritual. Even that being said, when James says call the elders, he's saying, in a sense, anybody can pray for anybody. What is important is that you call somebody to pray over you, that you lean into a community of prayer. When you lean into a community of prayer and you invite people to pray for you, you know, there, there are times when you're really, really sick. You've ever, you ever been here? You know, like somehow when we get sick, it affects not just our body, but it affects our soul and our spirit. When you're sick, you don't, you don't much want to see other people. There are times when you're really sick, it's fair to say you don't even have the strength or maybe even the faith to pray. You, don't, you might not even have the ability, you might not be able to muster in your soul a prayer of, God, please make me well, do whatever. He says, in those moments, in your weakness, lean into the community of faith to somebody, invite somebody in who can pray on your behalf. It's worth noting, by the way, that I, I need to recognize this. We have a healthy community of prayer right here at Middle Street. And they kind of fly under the radar, but we have a a prayer team. They don't draw attention to themselves, but when a need comes up, especially when a severe need comes up, there's a group of people who email one another and they, they pray together for whatever need is going on. And some of you are on that team, I know. There is something powerful that happens, not just when we pray for ourselves, but when we pray for one another. It's almost like, you know the old saying, a rising tide raises all boats. It's not often used in the context of prayer. But consider that James indicates it it may be true of our faith. That in the moments when you're too sick or too weak or too discouraged to muster up your own faith, somebody else's faith can be incredibly beneficial for you. And this isn't just, I don't think, when people are sick. This can apply to grief. This can apply to moments of severe depression like, there are times, aren't there, where you just, you need someone to pray for you. You need to hear somebody else praying over you. And somehow that becomes a shot in the arm to your own faith. I was just on the phone with somebody earlier this week, and I hear this over and over, but I was reminded because I was just on the phone earlier this week, one more time, with, with a person from Middle Street who's very sick. And he said, Chris, I just can't tell you how much the prayers of this church mean to me. I can't tell you how much I I feel, like I actually feel in my body that my church family is praying for me. And I, I hear this all the time. If our if our faith were a lone ranger faith, in other words, you get sick and you just gotta pray yourself. Then, then those moments of weakness and illness and sickness, they would make us wither. 
But thanks be to God, the economy of God's kingdom is not an economy where you get by only on your own merits. The economy of God's kingdom is not one where you only get by on your own merits. In other words, God intends for there to be no such thing as a rugged individualist Christian. Our, our faith is by nature a community faith. You might even say, according to James here, a communal faith. And that's a good thing. Because when you're sick or when you're weak or when you're indisposed or if you're grieving deeply or depressed, like if you don't have the energy to do anything, how cruel would it be for God to say, well, you better figure it out. But God isn't cruel. He's merciful. And he, he sends other brothers and sisters in Christ your way to say, let me pray over you. Let me pray over you. Let me pray over you in faith. And somehow, some of that faith gets transferred to us. Now, this brings up probably the thorniest question of all. Let me just read verse 15 again. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. Which means that if somebody's sick, I just need to pray and have enough faith, and they'll be healed, right? And conversely, if they don't get healed, then I probably didn't have enough faith, right? Wrong. Wrong. There are churches and pastors who teach this, unfortunately. That's a tragic misunderstanding of what James is saying. It's born out of thinking that prayer has more to do with changing God than it has to do with changing us. Remember from last week, we said prayer is not so much about bending God's will towards ours, it's about bending our will towards God's. Now, if you took that misunderstanding far enough, like you just need to have enough faith and then you can heal anybody, then, then you just have to, all you'd have to do is make friends with somebody who has really, really like deep, robust faith. And you'd be set, right? Because you'd get sick and you'd call your buddy and they'd come pray for you and they would pray the prayer of faith and you'd be raised up. You'd be fine. And then you get sick again and you call your buddy again and they just come pray for you. And eventually, like, as, if their faith is strong enough, you would never die. It would be incredible, Right? That's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. In, um, in John 11, remember the story of Lazarus? John, that's the famous line, the shortest verse in the Bible where it says Jesus wept. Jesus had a very close friend named Lazarus. And in John 11, the apostle John tells us that Jesus went and he grieved so deeply over the death of his friend Lazarus that he wept. And then he went and raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, if that's not a prayer of faith, I don't know what is. James is just talking about healing sick people. Jesus healed a dead guy. And Jesus' prayer of faith, so to speak, raised him from the dead. Now, I I don't want to be too crass about it, but think with me here. What happened years later? Lazarus died again. I don't mean to make too much light of it, but you realize this, right? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Glory, hallelujah, but Lazarus died again. Avoiding sickness, avoiding death is not the ultimate goal of our faith. Hear me loud and clear on this one, okay? There's another account in the Gospels, I don't remember where, where Jesus heals a man born blind, a man born blind. And uh, some people ask him, they said, 
Did this man sin that he was born blind? Did his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus said, no, this isn't on account of sin at all, but so that the glory of God might be demonstrated. Sometimes sickness just enters our life. And it's, it's, not, it's not even that the point of our faith is to avoid sickness or to avoid illness or to avoid suffering or to avoid death. That's not the ultimate goal of our faith. If avoiding suffering is the goal of our faith, then, then what's the point of Jesus' death on the cross after all? According to, according to Christ, according to the Bible, death is actually far from the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. So it's far too narrow to assume that James just means muster up enough faith, pray for somebody, and they're healed from their sickness. There must be something more. It's easy to talk about this at kind of an intellectual level, and, but this, this becomes very personal. And I know for some of you this is very personal. And this became very personal for me about a year and a half ago. Because in April 2021, I remember standing over my dad's bed in the ICU. And there were really, everything was looking pretty bad. And I prayed, and I, I, was, I even had this verse in mind, and, and right, this teaching is so pervasive, like you still think it, like I just need to have enough faith. And God, please heal my dad. Please heal my dad. Please heal my dad. And that same week, my dad died. April 23rd, 2021. And you know, I'll be honest, like there are still times I wonder, did I just not have enough faith when I prayed for my dad there? Like we, we're just, I, I think it's just human nature. We're gonna wrestle with these things. Like we can't, we can't not wrestle with these things. If you assume a very narrow definition of what James is talking about when he says the prayer of faith will make them well, then yeah, maybe, maybe we just need to have more faith. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. Here's why. Because on the cross, Jesus said to the thief who was right next to him, remember he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus say? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. And as much as it hurt and as much as I wish that God had healed my dad on April 23rd, 2021, if what Jesus says is true, my dad went to be with Jesus in paradise. That sounds to me like a more robust understanding of what it means to be healed and made well. It's not how we wanted it, I'll tell you that. It's not how I wanted it. But maybe healing and being made well is more than just what happens to our molecules in this life. This is why every time we hold a Christian funeral, and I've told people before, I said there's, there's almost nothing better than a Christian funeral, like a good Christian funeral. It's bittersweet. Of course, it's bitter because we grieve the loss of life and the, the fact that death does, it severs relationships and it introduces brokenness. But there is, there is no sweetness like the hope of knowing that God has healed someone and made them well. For those who are in Christ, death is not the last chapter of the book. 
And I know that doesn't fully answer the question. It's not even so much about answering the question. I'm not sure we can fully answer the question, how do we pray and how does healing work? And when does, because sometimes God does miraculously heal people. It's incredible. I've, I've seen it. I've prayed for people and then they've, they've been healed and I didn't, I didn't have any more faith then. Like what? I don't know. But our faith is not so much about understanding as it is about posture. Remember, not as I will, but as you will. Father, not as I will, but as you will. Thy will be done. And so regardless of the outcome, regardless of the outcome, James says pray and pray together and pray hard and pray believing and pray thy will be done. Pray together in times of sickness. And then James adds one other situation where it's so important for Christians to pray together. That's in times of sin. Here's how he puts it, starting towards the end of verse 15. He says, if someone has sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. We're seeing the same result, the end result, by the way, healing here. But this time, James, James is talking about sin. Now, this is, um, this is worthy of its own sermon. I actually preached a whole sermon about confession and prayer over sin probably four or five months ago. It's the kind of thing that, I mean, even preaching a sermon isn't going to change everything. I get that. And this is so countercultural that taking, you know, the next seven minutes and preaching about this isn't going to change everything. I get that. This, this is such a major departure from, from how we want to live And major lifestyle changes don't happen at once. They take a lot of time. But let me paint for you, instead of trying to convince you and give you a how-to, let me just try to paint for you a picture of, of what happens when we confess our sin to one another and when we pray for one another, even in one another's sin. I'm going to lean here, and I've done this before, on my favorite neurobiologist, uh, a man named Kurt Thompson. And he, so here's what he says. So this is a, he's a psychiatrist, and he's a neurobiologist. He does a lot of study about how uh, interpersonal relationships actually change our brains. I don't get it. But he, so somehow, in certain relationships and situations, the neurons and the synapses in our brain change. So our relationships change us. And here's what he says, talking about... Uh, the courage it takes to confess our sin to one another. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, it's risky for me to share something that is potentially shaming for me. I've kept it buried because there's just too much shame wrapped around it. But when I share it with you, suddenly I'm no longer holding this by myself. And now I see you listening to this part of my story that I really hate, and you don't get up and leave, which changes me. He goes on to explain a little more about what's happening. He says, before I shared this with you, I believed that I should be ashamed. He's saying we believe we should be ashamed of our sin. I believed that I should be ashamed. I should keep this under wraps. I shouldn't talk about this. But when I do share it, and when you listen graciously, you allow me to be known, known, and therefore to live my story more truly. When you listen graciously, without shaming me for the thing I think I should be ashamed of, 
That's a Dr. Seuss line, so let me read that again. When you listen graciously, without shaming me for the thing I think I should be ashamed of, my shame is transformed by being known by you. And now I have more energy to be creative, to be more fully human, because I'm no longer spending my energy on keeping that part of my story hidden and buried all because you enabled me to tell my story more truly. Kurt Thompson is a Christian. He's using psychological language to describe the truths that are just there in Scripture. It's all truth. It's all God's truth, whether we use biblical language or psychiatric language. You see what he's getting at? Through confession, and specifically not just confessing our sin to God in private prayer, but confessing our sin to one another, We free ourselves from all that energy we're wasting trying to be a version of ourselves that we aren't. Trying to be the version of ourselves that we think other people want us to be. Thinking back in terms of biblical language, here's how John puts it in 1 John chapter 1 9. He says, When we confess our sin, when, not if, but when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in other words, when, when somebody says, like, you know, I, that, that sounds good, that sounds hard, I'm, I'm really not that into confession, like, I want to say, if I'm feeling cheeky, well, how about forgiveness? Are you into forgiveness? Because you can't really be into forgiveness without being into confession, God promises that when we confess our sin, he forgives our sin. And, and there is nothing as transformative as hearing another human tell you, brother, sister, they might use your first name, your sin is forgiven. It will set you free. It will loose the handcuffs of sin. And not just the handcuffs of sin, like sin keeps you captives, but the handcuffs of always feeling like you have to hide your sin. So I meet every single month uh, with a a very small group of close, trusted friends. Other, um, all of us are either pastors or one is a retired pastor. And there are five of us in all. And in those meetings, nothing is off the table. And it's not uncommon for for somebody to come into that room and to say, guys, there's just something I need to confess. And, and that group has, evolved. I mean, we've been together for seven, at least seven years, maybe a little bit longer. And so it's taken time to build that kind of trust. But it's to the point now where we're like, we know if there's sin we need to confess, that's where we're going. Because we trust those people. We trust one another. We know that, that they're not going to shame us, but they're going to say, as Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, who's there to condemn you? Let him who's without sin cast the first stone then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That we'll meet forgiveness and accountability. Now, I, I should say, I do this with this group. I would not do this with just anyone. This requires deep, deep trust. And I'm not suggesting you just find a random person or find someone after the service and confess a sin. That would be a, probably a misapplication of what we're saying. But is, is there anyone... Is there anyone who you trust enough to, to verb, to speak out loud your confession, to almost to make it tangible 
and who you trust enough to say, you know what, your, your sin does not define you. And who can point you to the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, like those friends of mine will. Because when you experience that forgiveness, you understand what King David is saying in Psalm 32. He starts Psalm 32 and he says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. By the way, I love that last line, in whose spirit is no deceit. I think John is riffing off this in 1 John. When John, for, John says in 1 John, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There is greater blessing in confessing our sin and being honest about it and feeling that forgiveness wash over us. And once again, James doesn't limit this to pastors or priests. He says, confess to one another and pray for one another. So this is not something that you only do with a pastor or with a priest. Or No, this is something any one of us can declare Christ's forgiveness over any one of us. And in so doing, you get to point that person to Christ. This is, I think, what he's getting at in verses 19 and 20, the last two verses when he says, my brothers, we would add my brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. You see, when someone confesses to you and then they get to hear you say, and you get to say, it's, it's, it's a cool thing to say, like your sin is forgiven. You're, in essence, turning them. I mean, they're turning and you're turning them. It's a joint effort from the error of their way and pointing them to Christ and saving them from death, James says. So pray and pray together, James says. Pray together in all situations, in all seasons, whether things are going really well or really poorly whether you're feeling great or you're not feeling all that great. Pray together, not just individuals, as individuals, not just alone, but as a, as a family, because as we do, we experience Christ, we know Christ, and in a sense, we get to be Christ with and to and for one another. So let's pray. Lord, uh, teach us to pray. This is a lifelong lesson. It's not something that any of us masters. And as much as we think we want to master it, it's probably something we don't. Instead, we ask that you would teach us day after day to be willing to to be mastered by you. That we would follow you, that we would obey you. Not out of duty or drudgery, but out of delight, knowing that true life, true life, comes in the way of Jesus Christ. We ask all of these things in his precious name. Amen.